This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I am Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where we are trying to find the 100 best movies of all time. And when we do, we're sending them to outer space. But this week, we are taking a, a moment to not just pick one film to talk about. We are picking multiple films in a brand new series we're calling Multiplex Roundup. Or I guess maybe movie roundup, because who even knows if we're seeing these movies in the multiplex anymore? Amy, you and I are going to talk about three movies that have been, I think, the talk of the summer so far. Doctor Strange 2, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and Top Gun 2. I'm excited. Me too. I want to hear your thoughts on all of these. So yes, I'm glad we're carving out a little bit of time just to babble, 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 because I'll show a little bit of what's behind the veil. Pretty much every time I see a movie, I tend to like text you and our producers and be like, yeah. dude, I just saw this. Oh my God, I can't wait for you to see this. Blah, 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 blah. And now and we feel talk. like we can't always talk about those movies because we're trying to do something bigger and different. And this is why I feel like it's a great chance for us to get in and just geek out about these movies. And let's talk about the savior of the multiplex. We alluded to it in our last episode, Top Gun came back the biggest opening of Tom Cruise's career. Of his career, his first $100 million opening. I think over the entire holiday weekend, it made $151 million. Everybody I know has seen it, and it seemingly <laughs> played in every theater, in multiple theaters across the country. I saw Glenn Powell out there shaking hands. They had movie theaters where planes were out in front. This movie was welcoming people back. And I think what people don't realize is right before we shut down for COVID in that March, they had already released a trailer for Top Gun Maverick. It was coming out that summer. Now, fast forward what, three years, Tom Cruise doesn't even release it last summer when people were like, we're coming back when Fast 9 came out. No, no, no. He waited one more year and then basically said, and we're back. I feel like that's really what this move was. Like he sat on it to compete with nothing and really, I mean, just gobbled up everything. I mean, $151 million is insane. I know. It is wild. I mean, as a cruise observer, what I have been watching his career for is like the moment when he is like, you know, uh, that's it. I did it. I'm back, baby. I am back again being the king of the multiplex, right? Because I feel like that's been his arc, you know, since 2005. He got dinged. They were like, oh, his career is over. Oh, where is Tom Cruise going to go? And Tom Cruise, I think since then, has been steadily trying to be like, nah, man, never left. I'm still here biggest movie star in the world. I must prove it. And he's been trying to prove it in, you know, a box office climate where it's harder and harder to have that number one hit. Where like the kind of movies that Tom Cruise was able to make number one don't ever make number one anymore. So he's been like figuring out how to work in this new system. Although I will say, 
Do you know what film was it was his gigantic number one hit 15 years ago? No. Because the whole kind of mental story, right, is like 2005, he starts dating Katie Holmes. He jumps on the couch. He goes on Matt Lauer and says mean things about Brooke Shields. His career is over. The movie that he's promoting during all of that buildup of the press tour is War of the Worlds, his movie right. with Steven Spielberg. When that opens, that is his biggest hit ever of all time, his biggest opening weekend of all time. So it's like his career kind of never left, but he's just been like trying to prove it ever since then with like big, big hits, finally doing Top Gun 2 and being, I would agree, the savior of the multiplex. I don't know what other movie stars we have who have the clout to say like, I'm going to control when this comes out because I know that I want it to be big. I will never do it on streaming. I will never do streaming. I believe in movie theaters. Well, I mean, let me get to my theory about this movie right off the bat because I feel like we're talking about it already. This movie is the autobiography of Tom Cruise. Maverick is Tom Cruise. He is this guy who wants to just be a movie star, not a director, not a writer, just a movie star, just like Maverick, just wants to be a captain, not an admiral, not get a promotion. He wants to fly planes. That's what he wants to do. Tom wants to be a movie star. He and, wants to do the action, you're saying. He doesn't want to be pulling the strings? Well, yeah, I think that he loves producing and things like that. But I'm saying, but as far as like what his passion is, his passion is making big movies. Like that's what his, seemingly his passion is simply that. So then, you know, they're like, Tom, can can we make movies like you used to make? This is me just going through the movie a little bit using the actor metaphor. Like, you know, you, you know, we'll watch your movies and we'll let other people or you'll guide other people. You'll be the second in command or you'll have to show people what to do. And at a certain point, Tom's like, I'm showing them what to do. They're not doing it. I got to do this myself. And then without any big spoilers, he does it himself. Maverick is a legacy sequel where Tom Cruise passes the baton to Tom Cruise. He is literally just like, this is me. You want, you want the best person to do the job? It's not these young motherfuckers. It's me. I'll carry them on my back. And you may think they're great, <laughs> but you will never see them unless I was in front of it. I do believe that like the passion of Maverick, the way that they're like, Matt, Tom Cruise, you're old Hollywood. You ain't new Hollywood. You got to get into Marvel movies. Like, God damn it, I'll find my F-14 and I'll show you how much old Hollywood and new Hollywood is. It, it It is such a, I think, a personal movie because it is like flipping the bird, just like buzzing the tower and going, you know what? I can do this in my sleep. And <laughs> well, yeah. I was giggling when they were like telling, you know, Maverick, it's time to let go. And he was yeah. like, I don't know how. He does not know nope. how to let go to doing this movie, to doing this sequel, to bringing Maverick back. It, and in a way that I think isn't good conversation with Top Gun, which we just reviewed like on this show. Because remember how Top Gun, when we were talking about it, we're like, okay, we call bullshit on this ending where Maverick is like, I did it. I saved the day. Maverick, what do you want to do? Are you going to go to Disney World? And he's like, mm -hmm. no. I want to be an instructor. And you and I were both like, this guy does not want to be an instructor. No way. No way. And this is the movie where he's forced to be an instructor. And he's like, eh, not for me. I'm not I that mean, great. He literally, I'm not that great. He literally says in the film, he did Top Gun Academy for two months as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I wasn't cut out for it. And what he continues to do is the love of what he was born to do. And we went back in the last episode and talked about his press tour in Cannes. And, you know, they said, Tom, why do you do all these, you know, death-defying stunts? And he said, no one asked Gene Kelly why he danced. And that, to me, is Maverick's point of view. I think that this is the most autobiographical Tom Cruise film we have ever seen. But I don't like, think Tom Cruise has that much in common with Maverick himself, right? I don't know. I mean, like, Maverick in this movie is a bit of a loser, I mean, I think that's kind of how people see him. Like, yes, like he's doing this like Mach 10 challenge at the very beginning. Maverick in the first Top Gun is his own worst enemy. Like he can't 
promote himself. He can't keep himself like together. He keeps doing the dumb thing that gets him in trouble at the end. And I think this movie shows you what it's like to be that guy, like how that plays out. Like he doesn't have a lot of success in the military. Like All of his buddies are like more powerful than him. Iceman succeeds. Iceman is like commander of the Navy. You know, and and like we see that Tom, that Maverick being Maverick is not a success. Tom Cruise is fundamentally a success. I don't think he has like a rebellious spirit at his core the way that Maverick does. I mean, Maverick is kind of bottoming out, bottoming out. Like he's he's not going to get to fly planes anymore if he can't keep this together. Like, I think you get to see the limit of what this character becomes, which I find interesting because, I mean, Tom Cruise has always had, I feel like, conflicted ideas about how people took this Maverick image and then ran with it. And they were like, yeah, join the Navy, be cool, hit on chicks, be crazy, like rah, 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 sign up and enlist. I think he was weird about that. Remember, we were talking even about how he said like it was irresponsible to do a Top Gun sequel in the 80s. I like that he takes this Maverick character and he's like, yeah, this guy has kind of an empty life. It, it doesn't really work out for him that well, even though he is so good at what he does. You see, I, guess- I, I see it differently. Like, yes, he doesn't have any personal connections. And I would argue that Tom Cruise has uh, in his personal life. And again, there's a whole thing to unpack there, but he is a loner, right? He is a loner. He has been with women. He is not one of those people who is a long-term marriage guy. He has gone in and out of relationships. He isn't a loser. He is just so passionate about one thing, which is making great movies making experiences that he keeps on pushing himself further and further and further from the original Top Gun, where there were a couple of airplane scenes to Mission Impossible to the trailer for the new Mission Impossible, which played before Top Gun Maverick, where he like jumps off a cliff on a motorcycle. And you're like, I don't even understand what I'm watching here. Like it is a constant battle of one-upmanship with himself. He's not competing against anyone else. He is always doing this. And I think the the people who are calling him a loser are, let's put it in the movie studio terms, the movie studio. You're a loser. You need to sign up for Marvel. Do your thing. Be, you know, be Michael Douglas and Ant-Man. And he's like, no, I am Paul Rudd and Ant-Man. I am like, I, I need to get in front of this. And, and who he supports are all the people who love him. It's like Hondo, all those people that he was flying for. Like, Maverick's the best. Maverick, don't push it. Oh, Maverick, you got our back. Everyone loves, Ma- all the all the pilots love Maverick. It's just those heads of the studio that don't. And they're like, you're old. And again, you're old, old man, old man, old man. He ain't no old man, right? He gets in there and he shows them, yeah, I'm 40 years older than you. And I'm going to fucking kick your ass. Uh, like, I'm going to look better without a shirt on. I'm going to lead this movie and still be the most charismatic person on screen. Now, by the way, the movie is cast really great. I think pairing up with Macquarie was great. I think that Kaczynski made that thing look awesome. But I do believe that is what he's saying. People are telling you, you need to go out to pasture. You don't have the goods anymore. And maybe after American Made and The Mummy and uh, even the Jack Reacher franchise that he tried to get going. Yeah, the first one was good. The second one was awful. Yeah, and I feel like that... While he doesn't make bad movies, they're not working, right? The only thing that are, that's working are Mission Impossible. Because even the best movie that I think he's made in a long time before this movie is, uh, you know, Live, Die, Repeat, or, you know, whatever they called it. You know, what they, I know it had two different titles. But, um, like, and that didn't even work at the box office. Because it felt like it was just oblivion, which, you know, was weird, I think, on the marketing side of it. So he has been a little bit in this rut of, I think, making fine movies. Mission Impossible has like, like kept him above board because those movies are so stellar. But he's, but here, he, I think, pulls off the magic trick. I think he does the Maverick move. But I wonder, I mean, so much of the mantra of the movie is this phrase he keeps saying, like right at the end, suddenly it gets this mantra, don't think, just do. Mm-hmm. Where he says it, he tells it to Rooster, you know, the Miles, Ter- the Miles Teller character. I don't, do you think that that's how Tom Cruise lives his life? Don't think, just do? I think of him as being incredibly calculated and not in a bad um, way. I feel like we use calculated no. as an insult, but I do think of him as a thoughtful person. I think in terms that, of his career. I think that he trusts his gut and that's what he's kind of saying. Trust your gut. I need to make blockbusters. If I make it, people will show up. It's field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. He has a ultimate belief in himself. 
Like, don't think. You know it, do it. Do what you believe in. Because that's what Rooster does. He, he does think. He is presented with multiple options of what to do. And he trusts his gut, not anything else. And I think, you know, look, I will also say that as we're talking about this movie, and I love this movie, I can also agree that there are some like dangerous, not dangerous, but like, do we really need to be telling uh, straight white men, don't think, just do? Is that a message that we really need to be getting out there? Like, is that something that people need to be hearing? I love Glenn Powell in this movie. I think he's fantastic. I think we could have given Phoenix something to do. The woman in this movie doesn't have she, she much gets more to do. to do, I think, than Glenn Powell. What I does think, she do? Like, she has that Did really she crazy. She has the great bird strike sequence at the end. She's the other pilot that he picks. He unmans Glenn Powell. He doesn't choose Glenn Powell to go on that mission at the end. But Glenn what Powell does is like do? left on the dock. Phoenix is like his main partner in flying. She like flies the other plane that hits the other tune. Like, I think that Phoenix is one of the greater characters in this. I would say that the Glenn Powell character is who Maverick is. Glenn Powell's character is much closer. Hangman is much closer to who Maverick is in the first movie. And this movie puts that character on the dock, not flying at the end of the movie. I will say casting wise, I wouldn't have cast Glenn Powell in that part. I think he's good at it, but Glenn Powell is funny. What I wish they would have done for Maverick is cast Glenn Powell as Rooster. Because if you tell me- Well, that's what it was supposed to be. Well, right. If you tell me that Glenn Powell is, is like Anthony Edwards' son- is like is is Goose's son? I would believe you. I think he's like funny, yeah, but charming, Rooster, witty, but- naturally blonde. I don't think Miles Teller feels at all like like Goose's son. Like that blonde mustache is terrible. I think he's kind of humorless. I would have I would have flipped those roles and put Miles Teller like in the Hangman part. I I disagree because I feel like Miles Teller. I think it's the best Miles Teller performance I've seen since Spectacular Now and Whiplash because I think that he is best when he is brooding and insecure and not like brooding and angry or like, cause that, I think his insecurity is what makes the relationship between the two of them more interesting. I don't buy Glenn Powell being as insecure. I buy Glenn Powell being the next Tom Cruise. And in a weird way, I think to your point about the Top Gun episode, Rooster represents who Maverick was and uh, Hangman represents who he pretended to be because you were saying that he was putting on this act, right? And that's the dichotomy of Maverick between Rooster and Hangman. But I don't buy for a second that this Rooster grew up in a house with that Meg Ryan that we met. No way. That woman had a lightness of spirit. I don't, I don't see any of, well, the, of that I mean, but he that. also has been someone who has been pulled off track. Like, imagine the resentment that you would have and the chip on your shoulder you would have. Like, he is not... He is four years behind because of this slight that Maverick did to him. So he is truly like coming at this, not with the lightheartedness. Plus, you know, he's carrying the baggage of, you know, we see different elements of him, right? Because before he knows that Maverick is training him, we see him singing in the bar, having fun. He's a little bit looser. When Maverick comes into the picture, it, it, it rekindles the yeah. chip on his shoulder. And yeah, I think that totally. that's why we see him that way. I agree. But I think Glenn Powell could have played that just as well and felt more Goosean to me. Um, I don't know. But, uh, yeah. but we have to talk about that bar scene. Because, okay, I'll just say, it. like, I like Maverick. I think Maverick is a great movie. Love the flight sequences. Loved loved many moments of this movie. Even teared up just a little bit at the end when they like land and, you know. Not even with the Val Kilmer moment. You didn't cheer up there? That was really actually lovely. That was, that was a really beautiful. I, really I thought that was like that. a very tasteful thing. I did, yeah. And I, and I, I teared up a bit when um, Miles said, you know, it's what my dad would have done. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Got that moment. But there were times in this film where I felt like for a movie all about risk-taking, they played it so safe. I mean, to open this movie with exactly the same intro as the first one, the music, no. the planes, and then going straight into Danger Zone again, I was like, really? Do we have to that do so what I love. That is what oh, I love. I don't know. Uh, all right. Well, here's, can I tell you, okay, this is my theory on this because I want to, I would like to unpack this with you. And I now feel like we could do a whole episode on this, but I will say this. What I think this movie does really well, and I think this feels like a Tom Cruise and a um, Chris McQuarrie thing, 
they looked at legacy sequels on some level and said, what works, what doesn't work? And I think what we see a lot in legacy sequels, and legacy sequels, if you're not familiar with the term, is essentially what The Force Awakens is, where our main heroes from the first trilogy or film take a backseat to a younger cast, right? That's like a legacy sequel. So it's a sequel technically, but we're focusing on different people. So I think they watch these legacy sequels and they go, all right, what should we do? And it's like, what do people want? Well, I think people want the feeling. People want the emotion. And it's like this thing that Jerry Seinfeld said uh, in his documentary, Comedian. He was like, when you come out on stage, the first five minutes, anything you say is going to be applause, laughter, whatever. They love you because they're so excited to see you. And that's Jerry Seinfeld. He's like, and then after that first five, that's when you have to start to work. Because now it's like, okay, well, what do you have? So I actually felt like what they did was they didn't shy away. They were like, okay, we're going to give you the opening that you with the text title. Everyone's going to be cheering in the theater. Then we're going to show you that footage on the thing. We're getting you pumped up. Yeah, baby, I love it. And then when they hit Danger Zone, and it wasn't Lady Gaga doing Danger Zone. It wasn't 21 fucking pilots doing Danger Zone. It was Kenny Loggins doing Danger Zone. No updated, no like alt version. You are immediately like brought back to the memory of that. It's a fun open. And then the minute that curtain drops, we're into the movie and it's a completely different story. And it surprised me every step of the way because I thought, oh, for sure, we're going to have a death like Goose. I was like, for sure, Miles Teller is going to fucking sing in the bar the way that Tom Cruise did. And they did. They subverted every one of these things, but gave you they gave you the feeling without duplicating it. And then also they just uh, throughout the whole idea of the legacy they, sequel. You're, uh, I think they duplicated it a little bit much. I mean, when they go to the bar, cool. Absolutely. People staying out of the bar. I actually go to the, whenever I've been have forced to go to Comic-Con, I love going to like the Top Gun bar that they have right there. Because you can go, there's like a stand-up, you can put your face in Tom Cruise's face. It's great. But like, you're going to tell me these kids are hanging out the bar in the year of our Lord, 2022, young kids in their 20s like listening to the same songs they're still singing great balls of fire around the piano except they have to sing it like with some sort of mournful weird slowness at the end it's like when they go outside of the bar when tom cruise leaves the bar and you can hear the people singing still on the inside and i just heard them go like goodness gracious in the doofiest way at that moment i thought no 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 you have no pulse for actually what kids are doing kids are not still listening to slow ride Unless it's like deeply ironic, I don't. I did not uh, buy that. It felt too nostalgic. Okay, for me. It well, felt too I, suffocating. I will. I will say. Look, I was most nervous about that moment, and what I loved was it wasn't you lost that loving feeling. What it was to me was not that kids listen to that music. It's that Rooster has a connection with that song because. It's the song, one of the only songs that he has a memory of of his dad. And, 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 I, and I think that in my mind, Rooster did that one time when he was at Top Gun, because all these people have been at Top Gun. It wasn't like, this is what he does. All, like, I think that that's like his little thing. I don't think that he goes around doing oldies. I think it's that thing. And I feel like it was a, his like tribute to his dad. And I, and I, and I, yes, I understand what you're saying, but I don't think, I think the way that they brought it in and they even showed you the connective tissue of it, which, you know, if you're an idiot, you wouldn't get, but the idea that it was about him honoring his dad and, and, you know, maybe in his mind, he's like, oh, it, was, it was that bar that we actually did it at. Or, you know, whatever it is, like that piano, is that the same piano? It's not. Yeah, it, it's a different bar. It's a different of bar. Of course. Yeah. I, mean, but, yeah. I mean, but in his mind, he could have even created that was the bar where he was at. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, my gosh, I remember this. When my dad was a Top Gun, we had, you know. Yeah, but and, all of the kids are way into it. All of the kids are but way I think into because it. They're like, like him. rocking out. They're like, yeah, goodness gracious, great balls of fire. But if it, you said, if someone, so, okay, I've been okay. at Christmas parties where people get around a piano and sing, and you, if someone starts playing a live piano and, and, and chimes in, that's a song that people would know. And maybe you're right. Like, maybe it's too young, 
but I also feel like the dramatic echoing from outside. Well, that's 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 Come not on. what that's I not mean, what that you can't say sound design. Like you have to say what was going on in the bar. What was going on in the bar is different than the sound design of well, Maverick on the, the outside. Well, the sound design is a choice that you make when you put together the movie, and they decided it would have a dramatic reverb. But I mean, because it's, like, it's, it's like in Maverick's saying, head. No, it's like they were. It, uh, come on, no, it's like they were turning this into like Leonard Cohen Hallelujah for some I, reason. I so it was a little too much. It was. Right. I mean, it, it's almost like I was kind of laughing because you know that in that beginning, like he's flying so fast and he's going to like ten point four Mach, mm-hmm. and then he explodes and he crashes at a diner. Like when he enters the diner, there's like basically like little Opie Anthony eating Fruit Loops at a diner, and I was like, oh, is this a movie where like he went back in time? And that's kind of what it felt like. It felt like he flew so fast he went back in time, and cool kids still listen to the great balls of fire and like sing it around the campfire. I mean, I I do not begrudge it, it, but I I come from this from a position of I wish Tom Cruise is making bolder choices and I'm glad he made a great Top Gun Maverick. But like for him to make a movie that felt this safe in plotting and in like giving you these touchstone moments, it did start to add up to me. It added up to me that like there are moments when this movie does not want to take Big, 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 big risks. Okay, well, let me just bring it back to one more thing, because I know we probably will never see eye to eye on it. If Tom Cruise got behind that piano and started singing Great Balls of Fire, I would be one million percent in agreement with you. Um, You know, look, and this movie is, to you, what you said before, this is the most Tony Scott movie that I have seen in a long time. It hits beats, it gives you emotions, it runs you through all the motions, and those Tony Scott movies, like... I guess the way that I felt in other legacy sequels is movie moments like that feel dirty. They feel like, ooh, I'm a little uncomfortable. This feels sweaty. That didn't feel as sweaty to me. And I was that was the moment that I was like, that will feel the most sweaty. And I also disagree that, look, I'm not saying this is a movie that I want to put into outer space. I'm not saying this is the best movie ever. I'm thinking this is a great, fun popcorn movie. But I also think that they challenged the plotting of it a little bit. I was a little unsure of how it was going to end. I thought that they made Top Gun a heist movie. I would also argue they kind of made Top Gun a Mission Impossible movie. I think that they... Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a heist movie. It's like, hey, we have this this thing we need to do. It's basically like, the uranium plan is basically like getting a necklace full of like exotic rubies from the Pharaoh's yes. age or something like that. Here's how we're going to do it. We have to figure out how it will be done. Everybody has their part and now we have to execute it. And I like that structure. It's like, this is a heist movie. The first one was a, a sports movie. That right. was about competition. This is about execution. And they didn't And, they and they didn't brought you into it. it. Yeah. yeah. Br- and they brought you into it. Cause like, I love the flying sequences and I loved that they had plotted it in a way where I knew what was happening, what they were doing, where you weren't just like trying to guess or like, what's going on now? I mean, bad no, heist movies make you do ending. that. Yeah. And you yeah. really, I really felt like I understood how hard everything was. And I was like proud when they pulled it off. I mean, yes. that shot of like the plane flying low across the desert is staggering. And I like that they took this idea of aerial stunts. I mean, going into this movie, I would have been like, what's a difficult thing for a plane to do? Go high, go fast. And they're like, no, it's like fly near each other and fly low. And they yeah. they upended what difficulty looked like to me. I mean, for yeah, his plane I, to be like going up between planes, that I mean, like, made me gasp. That was so scary. And I think that like, look, it still has the 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 lightness of plot right like who are the bad guys we don't really know right we just yeah, know like they're bad indian ocean okay who's around right. the indian ocean i've read and it's also like it's Is also like hey snowy like yeah i mean it's like it but they want to keep it vague right it's like oh yeah we're gonna we're gonna attack this facility which seemingly has no one in it so it's okay. It's like war is okay ultimately because it seems like no one gets hurt. You know, it's like it's more about can we do this heist, right? Like which is also a bombing. Um, I do think that they broke, I guess, again, what I was happy with. And I and maybe it's because I am a, a fan boy and I'm suffering the PTSD of all these movies falling into the same traps over and over and over and over and over again. Like, oh, we're going to have, this is the character that's that. This is the character that's that. It didn't feel like they were hitting plot beats. They were hitting emotional beats. And and I felt like they kept on changing it so much so that at the end, besides the very, very end, I was like, and I don't want to spoil it even though we were there at that point, but there was a moment where I was like, 
Oh, I guess we can spoil it because you already said it. I was like, oh, Maverick will die. And that'll actually be cool. But then I was like, of course he won't. But like, but yeah, I would I go that way. way. I was like waiting to see if he died. Like, is he And I was like, and that would be a really cool and, and it would be a great ending. And like, but yet it's a Hollywood movie and it doesn't, you know, I don't know. I just think that Macquarie ups the, ups the ante in making really fun, big movies that I think deliver a little bit more on the emotional moment, like the, the understatedness of the Val Kilmer scene. There were a lot more, you know, I think that the, the way that they played that moment between him and Miles Teller in the snow was incredibly funny and it felt earned and it didn't feel like macho. It just felt like honest. You know, I don't know. I like again. Yeah, I mean, and, and I kind of. I'm not like, saying it's the best was, movie. I'm yeah. just saying it was good. I think the romance in this is better than the romance in the first Top Gun. Like, oh I did my god, believe yes. him and Jennifer Connelly, and I like that she's actually this woman that we've heard about so much off screen in the first Top Gun. They keep talking about him and the Admiral's daughter, and like yeah. Ryan is teasing him about it, and now we see like him and the Admiral's daughter, and the idea. That they like, you know, they've had this off again, on again relationship for so long that outlasted his relationship with like Kelly McGillis and the way they look at each other. And with, I guess, like there's regret and weariness in their eyes and, oh, we don't want to do this again. You know, it's like they've been to the Mile High Club, you feel like several times and they've crashed like every time. But like a romance that has a lot of tire tread on it, you know, where they're like, we know how this goes. I liked that, that it wasn't like shiny, new, flirtation. I it was agree. like agreeing and their to try to give this a shot again. was very fun in the way that it subverted expectations too. I mean, and, you know, there was a, I will say that this, one of the best moments of the movie is the sailing scene. You know, yeah. you put, like, that was, like, she looks badass on there. That looks scary as hell. Tom Cruise is out of his element, which is something you very rarely see him do besides like being in a fight scene and being like surprised like that was like he was not ready for it and then I do think it ends and as my friend said it really well and again I love this movie so I'm not shitting on it but I think I can pull some strings like the last moment of the movie is the two of them like kissing on a fucking silver Porsche that is essentially like a poster from Spencer's gift that says like you know you know uh, poverty (laughs) sucks right like I mean that like it's 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 all, it's saying like, Hey old man, your time is done. And the movie, like the, the, that's the thesis. And then it's disproven. It's like, no, actually my time is still, and I'm taking it like, and it's like there, and there is something, I think you can see why Tom Cruise gets behind that idea. You can see why he passes the baton to himself, you know? And, and I think also in the same way, like, uh, you know, he, he makes everybody that goes behind him have to do everything like him. So like you are getting these amazing scenes because without Tom Cruise being in the front of this movie, you're not getting those fight scenes. You're not seeing JLS. You're not seeing Miles Teller, uh, you know, or yeah, you're or not Grant like P- having a star with the power to say like, these kids are going to flight school. We we're need to create them, a flight school. Yeah. We're making them do these. They're actually doing these like, you know, upwards of like six G's in the plane. Yeah. Like he's forcing them. Like, he's teaching them to do that, which I appreciate. Like I had to keep kind of deep programming myself watching this movie to be like, to keep reminding myself that it is not green screen in the background. I know. Because well, like, felt, I'm so used to cheap green screen. And like to be like, the no, way, no, 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 no. That is the sky twirling behind. No, it's Monica amazing. Barbeau. That's And crazy. when he takes off from the aircraft carrier and you see that bump, I'll also say there's a type of movie theater besides IMAX and uh, D-Box or whatever it is called uh, Theater X. And there's an 90 minutes of more footage that they have because in those theaters, the walls are screens. So all the flying sequences are surrounding you. There's one in uh, Koreatown here in LA. I'm going to go back and see it like that because it was one of the few movies shot with that. A lot of the movies that have been in those uh, theaters are digitally created side, uh, you know, um, frames. But this is a full, they shot it. And the way that there's a great thing in American Cinematographer magazine about how they mounted the cameras is really technologically it's yeah. amazing but yeah I, will, I had to yeah. do a piece for the new york times where i like talked to like the the aerial dp and the aerial stunt coordinator about oh, like wow. how they did it and i talked to bruckheimer and monica and, and kaczynski about it to try to like figure out how they, all of these things were done and they kept kind of stressing like we did not have 
you know, cameras that could withstand what we did when we made yeah. the first Top Gun, like putting cameras on the wings, putting cameras tipping out. And the first one, they could only use a camera that kind of came like under the barrel, like from the belly of the pa- of the plane and looked around a little bit like this. But now they can get the cameras so much closer. They can put all sorts of focal lenses on it and they won't be, be like ripped off uh, in like the wind velocity. They'll be yeah. able to go this fast. And they were saying like, you know, because they're using actual military planes, like actual like FA-18 bombers for yeah. this, or uh, jets, I mean, not bombers, they ha- had to like work with the military in order to figure out like what they needed to take out of the plane to fit six cameras in the cockpit and the military to be like, okay, you can take out these weapons and we'll put a camera here. But to figure out just even with the military, what they could do to military jets in order to shoot this is nuts. I mean, and it... And it's, you know, it's tough because like, I do feel like when you're making a film with this much input from the military, it kind of limits what you can say and do about the military. And it, it, it does still creep me out that like the original Top Gun was like having military recruitment like tables right outside of the theater. Right. But there there is at least some element in this movie, I think, especially in the John Hamm character, that at least opens the door to the fact that like, Maybe you shouldn't totally sign up for the military that John Hamm, you know, is basically like, yeah, one of these kids will definitely die on this. Okay. Like, he doesn't seem that torn up about it. That's, I mean, to me, that's like as much of a, I don't know if it's even a critique or just a reality check. Well, I think it's a little bit like, yeah. I mean, I definitely think that you walk out of this movie and you feel the same exact way. But let's talk about this idea of a legacy sequel or or playing around with a legacy sequel with uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, um, which was a movie that I was really blown away by because, again, we're in this world where we come to expect certain things from certain places, right? And I will say, hands down, this to me was one of the most creator-driven projects, original ideas that I've seen come out of Disney in over a decade. Like I love, you know, I love the animated films. And I think they're great. And I think they're doing, but they all follow a certain formula. Yes. They may be opening up doors in certain ways and showing different um, lifestyles and showing different cultures. But this, I'm blown away that this is a Disney movie, that this is like a castle this is a touchstone movie or this is a like this is a on the side of Disney movie. I would never have expected them to be this cool with all their properties. You could tell that there are a couple of moments where they weren't and they just, you know, found a, a creative solution like the Swedish chef. But uh, but I do feel like this is a movie that I think completely subverted what I thought a Disney movie could be. It was funny and fast and it felt I don't know. It just felt like I had a, a really strong point of view. All right, so Chip and Dale, the rescuer, just for people who have not seen it, the setup here basically is that Chip and Dale are friends. They met when they were young. They went to Hollywood together. They became actors. They starred in the TV show Chip and Dale, which is not who they are, they're, they're, but they are actors playing those parts. You know, so Dale gets kind of sick of being this doofy guy in the red Hawaiian shirt, and they break up. They have a falling out. Dale decides to go on his own and make, like, a spy sh- series called, like, Double O Dale. It fails So where this movie starts, really, where like the plot starts in this film is that now they are old, they are cynical, they've been chewed up and spit out by this cartoon system. Dale is still trying to make it as an actor. He's kind of that guy just kicking around the margins of Hollywood, going to conventions and signing autographs for money. And Chip has just given up the whole thing. He sells car insurance and he's over it. And then they get roped in to working together when they realize that like a bad guy is taking old cartoon characters like them and rewarping them and turning them into like pirated versions of themselves to make money, like forcing them to sell out and act in basically like the cartoon equivalent of snuff videos. It is wild. And they bring in a lot of Disney characters and just sort of torture them and make fun of them and and go nuts. And they bring in outside people like like old and like Internet Sonic with all of the teeth. He's in here, too. And he's just like freaking out and being like, I thought they would like me for who I am. This movie is steeped in pop culture. This movie is nuts. Yeah, I kind of can't believe Disney got this 
made or decided to make it. I want to know, like, I kind of want to know every single thing about like Disney deciding, yes, we are going to make a movie where like Flounder is like addicted to krill and gets like his mouth erased and then winds up starring and, you know, the little fish girl. Like we're going to make a movie this, this dark. We're going to make a movie that's a Chippendale movie that in the first minute has a picture of like hairy men who are Chippendale's dancers. I, I love watching what Disney decides to do and change and how they move the needle on like casting and stories and all of the structure, everything that you're listing. I really enjoy observing it, even if I do rag on Disney movies a lot, because I feel like they have run the numbers and they think that this is where culture is going and they're going to put money behind that. And I'm fascinated by this, but Disney deciding they're going to put money behind the idea that the culture wants to see Disney made fun of and destroyed and sort of to take Peter Pan and say that Disney did Peter Pan dirty and used him up as a little boy and turned him into like this kind of POS like junkie dude who has to destroy other people's lives and like get control back because he never had control as a kid. That's actually very dark. And for Disney to be like, yeah, we do think people want to see this side of us too is fascinating. Yeah. I, I think that you have really interesting screenwriters there, which is like, um, you know, Dan Greger and Doug Mand, who uh, have worked on so many different things. I worked with them on NTSF. I also know that they worked and were great on How I Met Your Mother, amongst other things. And they've been working on this for a very long time. Then you bring in Akiva, who, uh, you know, is part of Lonely Island, has made some of, you know, these, some of the biggest videos in the last, you know, whatever, decade. Pop Star, I think, is one of the, uh, is a great uh, film. He's just a really interesting, fascinating writer, director, performer. And, this idea, it's really interesting because it felt so safe in the sense that it had parameters. But in those parameters, they could be very, very funny. And like, and I feel like that's like the 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 secret sauce, I think, for some of this stuff. And, and when I say safe, I mean that in a good way. It's like, it didn't feel like burn it all down. There's a love of these properties, of these characters, of this world. And again, who is the villain? The people bootlegging, making bad Disney movies, right? That's the villain of Chippendale <laughs> Rescue Rangers. Like the people who are who are ripping off Disney. So of course, that's a great villain for Disney. But they they are able to, I think, with the two characters of Chippendale, like give you this, we love it. We love it and we can have fun with it. And it's not like we're evil and we're not making anybody evil. It's like, what is this world? And I've seen a lot of people like react like, well, Roger Rabbit is better. And and I and I have an issue with that because I think it's like, what did you grow up on? And there is something about Roger Rabbit's it's 1950s and very specific style of cartoons and zinginess and woo-woo-woo kind of like uh, special effects and stuff that is very different. It's a 19, it's Chinatown, right? This is not that. This is like, I think, I don't even want to compare and contrast them majorly, but I do think this will have that same resonance. Like, it blew my mind to see, like, the 3D and the commenting on 3D and 2D and these other characters and what they do. It's like, I feel like this was saying a lot more about the state of the industry where the other one was just a mystery with a really interesting conceit. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, just to even have, like, Chip still be 2D and Dale decide that he's going to get 3D animation surgery, like, basically a facelift, like a monstrous you know, Joycelyn Wildenstein facelift to keep up with the times to try to stay hip in the new form of animation being done. That was like monstrous to watch, you know, to have like 2D and 3D in the same scene, two characters that you associate together being different animation styles. It kept hurting my brain and it felt so subversively, wickedly, evilly wrong just to see them in the same shot, which I appreciated. Like, I think this movie was designed to be unsettling, right? Yeah, I think... I think it is commenting on what we think is cute, what we think is more cute. Like, I mean, they have this entire, you know, section of the film where they go to the uncanny valley. They go to the valley, the uncanny valley, uh, where you see the kind of the rejects of the beginning of the CGI animation. And like what what animation has gone through to stay popular, this idea of animation is constantly in a state of evolution. And if you don't stay with the times, you'll like lose. And that's what this whole movie is about. Like, how can I stay hip or current and at what cost? And well, yeah, I think- Yeah, but it also yeah. feels sad that Dale is keeping up with the times too. It feels, yes. it feels awful. But it's also sad that like, 
Peter Pan is forced to live this other life because he can't be cast anymore because he's aged out. And look, and I think there are things that there are some logic issues, right, that don't always go together. Like the idea that like Chippendale never really changed their look or age, but like Peter Pan does grow old. Uh, you know, like there are and, I, and I'm fine with it. I'm actually so fine with it. And like, I think you don't think about it when you're watching it. I think it's a fun, easy story that allows you to hang a million jokes that comments on Disney, that comments on the world that we're all being subjected to, all the animation styles, all the ways that people are rebooting. And again, it is a legacy sequel, or not even a legacy sequel. It's a reboot. I don't even know how you would quantify what it is, but it's a reintroduction to some old characters. And I think the end of the story is you should go check out some of this stuff. Like, if you like this, go check it out. Like, I've talked to so many parents who are like, oh, yeah, my kids are now watching Rescue Rangers on Disney+, Plus, which I'm sure was part of the the plan of the the this whole thing. But it like this idea of like, why are we just going to the next, the next, the next? We can always look back and appreciate what we had. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was what an interesting way to do a Chippendale movie that is completely... Uh, meta, but yet is exactly what Chippendale's Rescue Rangers was and played within this this world and created something that was completely unique and just different than any animation film I've seen in a long, long time. I mean, it did feel like it had such a a world-weary, middle-aged perspective. I mean, I would say like what this movie is about is like having big hopes and the world breaks your heart. And right. what do you do next? I mean, that is so sad. Like, it's not like we're leaning out, we're like heading out and starting our life and our career and our future. Like this is about people who had success and then lost it. Everybody in here, everyone in here has had better times than when we meet them. And I, I mean, find yeah. that dark, but also, I mean, I was kind of noting the whole way through that this is a movie that, you know, sets out to try to have it every single way. They're like, we're going to make fun of the fact that cartoons have really awful rap scenes, but then we're going to do a rap anyway. But then it's going to be like a double, so triple, funny, yeah. ridiculous, awful rap. You know, it's like they're setting up the things that you want to see knocked down and then doing them anyway, but then doing them in a way that I found that is also still like funny and surprising. I mean, I one of the biggest laughs I had in that movie, and, and it's one of the things my kids say all the time now is at the end when they're kind of Pee Wee Herman style running through all the sound stages for the, like the, um, the cartoons, yeah. Yeah, the like bad the, cartoons. The bootleg Simpsons and Pooge the Fat Honey Bear. Well, I mean, when they ran through the Simpsons and the fake Bart goes like, I Pachanga, my kids <laughs> died laughing. My kids have never seen the Simpsons. And I think that that's an interesting thing too. We were talking about what's made for kids, what's not made for kids. This movie definitely is made for people who, or I think, a majority of the comedy is for people who grew up in this world. I know the Muppets. I know, I know this uncanny Valley. I know all these, all these references. Um, My kids don't, my kids followed the movie as a movie and they really enjoyed the movie. They're not getting those references, but they're not detracting from it either because they're looking at a crazy, funny scene of Seth Rogen as this CGI character whose eyes don't look down. And they're laughing at that. I'm laughing at that, but I'm also going, because it's true, that's Beowulf. You know, like I'm, you know, and I think like that's, we were, I know we were just thinking about what our conversations were like, it is what we're talking about. It's like, oh, this movie does work on both levels. Like they're not laughing at the same things that we're laughing at, but they are not being sacrificed jokes because they're not. Uh, yeah, I sense. was curious about that because there are so many jokes in this movie. Yeah. I mean, it feels like joke for joke. If you're layering like actual puns, actual lines of dialogue, actual ideas in the film, and then visual gags, like just seeing like a billboard for Senator Butthead from Beavis and Butthead oh, in yeah. the background. I mean, there's so many jokes that there have to be enough to sustain all audiences simultaneously at the same time, I am guessing. Like your kids, I mean, I'm curious about your kids. So like, the the Terminator 2 references, did that mean anything to them in particular or was it just cool? Well, I think, again, it's not like how does every joke have its own counterpoint? It's like, well, they're laughing super hard at like the putty detective getting all sliced up or, you know, peeling pieces off of his body. And there are like, so I think it's not like, oh, this is a they're not staring at the screen going, what was that? Why is that funny? They're just watching it. It just doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like a joke to them. So it's not like they're out of the joke. If if that makes sense, it's like, oh, they just had another joke right before that one. Now that's a joke for me. It's like, and then this is a joke for them. And this is a joke for both of us. It's like, so I, I, in that way, and I think that's, that's why it was really well done. It was like, 
They're making this meta commentary about the dumb rap songs. My kids are not familiar with that, but my kids are laughing so hard at the dumb rap song. So it's sort of like we get the full dinner and they're just getting like the the dessert or whatever. Like they're getting like they're, you know, like the, the four Were lines they? of dialogue that set it up. They don't it doesn't mean anything. They're getting that they're arguing, but then they're laughing really hard at the song. Were they extra happy when there was stuff that they did recognize? Like the Paw Patrol. Paw Patrol shows up in here. Were they like, oh, yeah, Paw Patrol. You know, they're, it's funny watching them. They didn't seem to have any reaction to that as if it was weird. Right? Like they love Sonic and they're like, oh, that Sonic is ugly. You know, but they don't know that that <laughs> Sonic is based on a trailer for the first. Like that, the main character of this movie is an inside joke that... Like even June didn't know what that was. She was like, "What? What is Ugly Sonic?" And really, but, no, yeah. <laughs> so it's like I had to show her like a side by side of the trailer. She's like, "Oh my god!" But but to them, they love Sonic, and you just call this character Ugly Sonic, and they're like, "That's funny," and and that to me was the win of this movie. It wasn't like you had to know about Ugly. Like June thought Ugly Sonic was funny. She didn't understand what it was referencing at all, and I don't think you need to. So that's, you know, and I think, I, I mean, I get it. And I think it's really funny. It's really meta. But it, I guess it's meta without being exclusionary to everybody else. And I think that that's, you know, something to always remember yeah. when you do that kind of stuff. It's like you still have to get the audience that's not going to get the jokes. And I think that they they go over and above that multiple times where you're just like, you're getting multiple things. Like, again, I'm laughing really hard because I know it's the Swedish chef. And clearly the Muppets did not give them permission to use any Muppets. But they create a character that is almost visually identifiable as a Swedish chef with a name like Bjorgen Born, you know. Um, and I'm like, okay, this is even funnier to me because yeah. it's it's a Swedish chef, you know. Like they don't, but, but they're I, just but watching this scary guy. I want to know about the guy. Muppet lawyer who was like, okay, I'll give you a, I'll give you a side mention of Muppet fights, but you right. can't have the Swedish chef. Like it can't be that exact. Well, but we'll like have somebody mention Muppet fights in the end. I can't and imagine I that they got the rights from everybody. I mean, how could they get the yeah. rights to Beavis and Butthead? How could they get the rights to Sonic? Like. That is something I would love to see an article about because yeah, there's a part I of me really that thinks that it's article. just parody. I think it's just because the movie is parody, they could use everybody's intellectual property. But if uh, because Disney was making the movie, they were able to say no to the Muppets. That's my that's my gut <sighs> because that's how you're able to do anything in sketch or like on SNL. Uh, you know, even when I was doing uh, Human Giant, like you have so much, you have so much, uh, you can usage and everything as long as it's in parody. And how the do only they decide in, when something is parody or comedy? Like, do you have to really make the case, like, no, 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 this isn't just a comedy, this is a parody? Um, well, I think you could just argue. It's, I guess it's like, what are you going to do? Like, you know, it's like, I, and I wonder, I, I wonder if it's about seconds. You know, it's like, all right, do you see that Beavis and Butthead thing? Like, the movie isn't called. Beavis and Butthead become congressmen, right? Like, mm -hmm. and maybe they did get the rights to that. I don't think they got the rights to every single one because everyone would want money, right? And at a certain point, it would be like, well, you can't use it. So I think if they're on screen for a limited period of time or there's like a connection or the fact that Seth Rogen's character is clearly Beowulf, but he's also Gimli, right? He Because mm -hmm. Beowulf, he looks just like Beowulf, but he's small, smaller. So that's parody. It is Beowulf, but it's not Beowulf. It's like Butthead is a slogan on a bench, but he's not in it. We're not doing his voice. Like there are those things. I think there's a, ugly Sonic probably isn't copyrighted because it's not Sonic. They don't want it. Like, you know, so there's like these little weird windows yeah. where I think you can get in. I just wonder, I mean, to me, I really appreciated this as like an evolution, a new twist on how to do an IP movie. That's mocking the idea of doing an IP movie all the, mm -hmm. like within it and mocking other sorts of IP reboots inside of it. The whole of uh, the ET forgive bat scene. Oh, that, that is, was that is wonderful. That was one of the hardest things I laughed at. And again, how do they get DC <laughs> to come over here and do Batman? That, that was the thing I was like really looking at. I was like, my God, they got that scene killed me like that. I laughed fine or whatever he said like it was just like it was like uh i was so but i and i also just yeah. love like yeah but where do we i wonder where we're gonna go from here like if this becomes the new thing if now we start getting all of these subversive ca cartoons which i will love then audiences will have to evolve again and what will be new after that i mean it makes me think of like when we were talking about 
pig dicks and how like they've had to get curlier and curlier to like nah. evade, you know, pig uteruses as uteruses have like evolved. I mean, now, now this is like a whole new kink in the pig dick. Where are we going to well, go, man? I think this is a perfect segue to kind of wrap up our discussion here and go, where are we going to go? And Dr. Strange, uh, the new Dr. Strange, it came out directed by Sam Raimi, which if you don't know the premise, it's overly complicated, but we can kind of simmer it down to, uh, one or two things. Um, Dr. Strange is, uh, trapped <laughs> with a girl who has tremendous power that allows her to travel throughout the multiverses. And they have to figure out, uh, how to stop the Scarlet Witch, who is going to essentially, uh, destroy, uh, many universes to get back her family. I mean, that's a very, I'm trying to like really simplify it. It's like, there's a big bad, they got to stop the big bad. It's but the plot I, of Spider-Verse, as we talked about in our yes. recent Spider-Verse episode. Yeah. And I think what we're talking about here is like, oh, what we can start doing. Like, we've had 10 years of Marvel movies. And now this is a Marvel movie made by Marvel, and it's with, you know, characters by Marvel. And this is a trippy movie. It's like, it could it have gone crazier with the multiverses? Sure. Like, the biggest multiverse moment, we talked about that, is when they're flying through all the multiverses. But I do think this movie starts to do things that are different and that are more comic book like it's like well how, what else can we show it's like let's show a a fight where we're fighting with you know two classical music uh composers you know it's like Bach and Beethoven their music their their notes are fighting each other and it's like whoa like that, that like that totally tripped me out and it's like oh we're making a horror movie now and we're pushing this and it's like yes these are all things like how can we keep on upping the ante how can we keep on changing the landscape of these movies so they don't feel like okay this person gets powers with powers come responsibilities then there's then they have a big moment and now they're brought into the pantheon of superhero like this is like an interesting way of doing a different version of that yeah i mean to me i thought this was like the least successful of the three movies that we're talking about because it i mean Chippendale is insane from the beginning. Yes. And Top Gun is working on nostalgia from the beginning. And I felt like I felt like this this one, Doctor Strange, was so uneven in its pacing. I thought the first hour of this movie was like one of the most boring Marvel movies I have ever seen. And then it gets crazy. And right. like it ends so crazy. That last like half hour, 45 minutes is so marvelous that I get why people are leaving this theater. Like, that was fun. Sam Raimi was nuts. I mean, everything that he does. And I feel like a slightly fewer people have seen this, so I don't know how much I want to spoil. But, like, the horror parts are horrific, and the goofy parts are goofy, and you see a real sense of humor in it. But that wasn't there at all on the first hour when I was losing my mind well, with the tedium. I, there's something that I really liked about the first hour, and I know a lot of people have slagged off that first hour, but I will say this. It doesn't feel to me like Sam Raimi has seen many Marvel movies, uh, if any, the, besides the ones that he has created, uh, which are the Spider-Man ones. And and I think he brings that sensibility in. And I think that that energy is really good. It feels like an auteur. Like it feels like I'm watching a Sam Raimi movie. These are Sam Raimi jokes, not Marvel movie jokes. Um, these are sequences, camera styles, all this sort of stuff that he brings. Now, what I liked about the first hour of the movie was... It set a baseline. It actually made Doctor Strange, in my opinion, kind of cool. Like this idea where you open up on this big city fight. We very rarely, I think, get to see Doctor Strange. Like, what is a normal day for Doctor Strange? And this seemingly is it. There's not a moment at the end of that giant opening fight scene where he like restores order and then the city is saved. It's like this fucking mass destruction, this big tentacle. It felt very James Gunn to me. It felt gross and weird and like psychedelic, you know, and the, and it's the way it looked. Um, buses are being cut in half. Uh, there's a lot of like supernatural elements that are fun for me to watch. And I also just like Dr. Strange jumping off a building, changing into the costume. Like there was something about it where I feel like it established this character and like, who is this character? Because I, you know, Dr. Strange one is fine. I think it probably deserves another look. Uh, but I liked it. I thought it was fine. It felt to me like very reminiscent of Iron Man at a certain point. So I was like, okay, but I've, I'm getting tired of those things. And he's been along the ride in a lot of these movies. He was popped up in Thor and he popped up in Spider-Man and, and, and it's, and he's becoming more and more of an interesting character. And I just liked seeing him live his life for a little bit, but you're right. Like plotting wise, these movies also have to take care of a lot of business, right? They have to like 
where are we at? Scarlet Witch, we followed her here. We got to get this. I didn't find that hour to be so upsetting as everybody else did. I think it may be like the difference between a roller coaster going up and then like no one goes, that's my favorite part. And then the roller coaster going down and going through loop-de-loops. Like, that's the best part. Like, yeah, I like the loop-de-loops. Yeah, I, me too. I like the loop-de-loops, but I also was like, I was invested <laughs> in that story and I was all along for that ride. I think pound for pound, I preferred Doctor Strange 1 because to me, what made that film distinctive in the pantheon of Marvel movies that had come before it is it felt like legitimately for fucking nerds. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it felt like the movie made in the doodles of your notebook while you're listening to like Man O' War and playing Dungeons and Dragons with your Mm -hmm. friends. Like it had that kind of like legit dork, dork, cool metal dork vibe that I appreciated. I liked, I loved the score in the first one, for sure. Like, all of this kind of fun, weird, medley harpsichord See, I like Danny Elfman coming into this, though, too. Like, I, I'm a huh. big Danny Elfman fan. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. I just want the series, if if, they, if we have to have our standalone Do- Doctor Strange movies, I just want them to be legitimately strange. And I would well, watch But the you don't whole, think like, that we I got that? I mean, with the zombie and the, and like, I mean, like, there's so much of that. I would so watch a whole style of the end of this movie. But I, but yeah, like I, I, I think what it are you me reacting want, I, to the fight scene? Because I'm, I'm thinking about it, I'm going, I'm not the fight scene in the city, but the fight scene where they go to the the training center and like they're like they're holding down the fort. Like that sequence is that like because is that like that well, like 15, 20 minutes before I, they start going through mirrors and stuff? I do feel like they struggled to make the America Chavez character as interesting as I think that character should have been. Yes, I you agree know, with that. I think that they made her whole arc like. I don't know what I'm doing and I'm very passive about it. And that's just not that great to keep watching on screen for like the entire movie. You know, they really don't let her do anything until like the last five minutes. And that felt like a big waste to me. Cause like if it's forced to be this buddy movie between the two of them, but she is completely hapless for most of it, that sucks. It felt like a bad plotting decision. It's tricky because you're making a buddy movie where you know one character very well and one character mm-hmm. you don't. And that's and I felt like what I liked about the scenes when they're eating pizza and stuff, I'm like, oh, I like this. We like these things and we're looking forward to these relationships. And to introduce another character in and make that character a main character, you're right. I think it, it there is less of a jumping off point. Like, give me Tony Stark and Don Cheadle and Iron Man 3 running off and doing a buddy movie because I've no Don Cheadle's character now. I know that character. I know their relationship and we just get into it, right? Yeah, or but if you're going to give yeah. me America Chavez, at least write that character in a way where I feel like I got to know her at all, which I felt like they right. didn't really no, do. No, like, I agree. I, like, I, I felt like, and this is my other complaint about the movie and surprisingly so, I felt the CGI was really weak and I don't know if that's mm-hmm. a Sam Raimi thing or not. Like I felt like, I was like, oh, I feel like I'm looking at a lot of CGI. And then I guess my other thing I would say about the set design is you can go in the multiverse and you just basically go to like the most like weirdo, like it just felt like a Disney park ride of what a multiverse could look like, especially after they flew through all those amazing, interesting ones. Like this one looked like, oh, it just looks like the city with more plants like I just it didn't it didn't pop to me and I think that those are the things that kind of are uh like a bummer like that like that's like like a visual movie I want the CGI to be amazing I want the worlds to be really next level but I do think that they upgraded the um the trippiness the psychedelicness of Doctor Strange a lot more and, you know, with that end cameo, I'm like, oh, well, I'm curious to see where he goes now. Like, let's see. And I will say, high point for me, all of the death at the beginning of, like, the final act. Good death. Yeah. I was, gl- I was glad they killed people, even though they killed people in a way where it's like, eh. Well, you know, and we'll that, and that go- but it yes. was at least brutal. And I appreciated that it got brutal. And I will go to the other point of this, which is like... uh I don't think that they relied on the multiverse. I think that they basically went to one multiverse, solved most of their problems in that one, and then like had a couple like it was like a little like a moment here, a moment there. It it's wasn't like, like it's a, like a duplex verse. We went to the duplex yes, verse. Which I like because I think like this idea of like just erasing your problems in every different dimension would be boring. And I and I do think that there was those elements of Raimi where it was like the city was destroyed in that opening, or not the city, but a, a section of the city was destroyed in that opening sequence. And I liked 
that it just didn't get fixed. And I think we're always trying to figure out how to, this idea of like, well, we got to protect all the citizens. When we fight here, we're actually raising up this plat- section of the city and has no citizen. Like, you know, it's like, we got to protect the citizens. It just sort of is like, well, if you're living in this world where tentacle eyeballs can come out, like, didn't move the fuck out of the city. Because it's like, you know, if you, that's part of the price you pay. Uh, but I did think there was enough good stuff in there that would made me excited. And I th- if you're a kid who's never seen a Sam Raimi movie, you're going to be like, oh, my God, this feels so aggressively different. It felt like James Gunn. It felt like Taika uh, in the sense that, like, oh, this is somebody who has a definitive style. And maybe he had to get through a little bit. Again, I didn't really feel that lag. Um but I was watching it in 3D. I was really enjoying all that sort of stuff. And it was oh, a movie. Are you the I last was... guy keeping 3D alive? Good for you. I saw You're like the Tom IMAX. Cruise of 3D. You're like, yeah, baby, I still stay 3D. You know, I saw it in IMAX 3D and I was like, I just wanted to watch it because I felt like that would be a movie that I would want to see in IMAX 3D. And it was totally right. Like it was all those little weirdness. It made it just pop so much more. Well, I want to see, I'll see Maverick again in the theater you were talking about in K-Town. Yeah. All right, I, I like that. Yeah. And by, is that the one that does like the split bucket of popcorn where it's half cheese and half caramel corn? Because that place is sick. I love I got to tell you, what, I'll, I'll send it to you. But I want to say one other thing about Doctor Strange. What I found really interesting about it was I have a group of Marvel friends. Marvel friends who are staunch Marvel defenders. Uh, Marvel friends who are, or I should say friends who just like movies. And this is a movie that I don't know what people will think of. Like I go to my big, the biggest Marvel heads. I hated it. You hated it? All right, worst Marvel movie. Really? And then I talked to other people like, oh, it was the best Marvel movie. Then I talked to people who never watched a Marvel movie. And they're like, oh, I really liked it. They talked to people like, no way. I found it to be too confusing. Like it really has been the most divided response to a Marvel movie. Wow. And I'm a big believer in, and it's probably where you and I maybe see eye to eye on certain stuff. I like it. Me like too. if you I are like divided that. on cool. that. Great. Like, there's no common consensus that that was a great movie or a bad movie. It is a personal preference. And if we can get big budget, and this is all, I think, maybe pulling it all back together. If we can, if we can pull that kind of unique point of view into these big multi, like into these big giant blockbusters, that's the future that I want to see. And I think each one of these movies represents a move in different directions. Tom Cruise doesn't have to answer to anyone. He is his own filmmaking machine, right? Except for Jerry Bruckheimer, maybe. But I think at that point, whatever, it's Tom Cruise. Uh, and I love Jerry Bruckheimer, I'm just saying, but I think that he gets a lot of say. Then then the middle one, Disney. Disney's like will, willing to change up some stuff. That's exciting. Then Marvel, I would say the arguably the the giant, the, the elephant in the room that everyone's trying to compete with is still going like, let's get a cool director. Let's do this. Let's make it a horror. Let's push the limits. So I'm excited from the state of blockbusters. And we talk about like a movie like the A24, like everything everywhere all at once. Uh, like that is the biggest A24 movie. It's like, this is interesting. Blockbusters are getting weirder. Maybe. You know, I, I am with you. I agree. That is exciting. That is exciting. I want weirdness. All I want is, all I want is show me something fun. Show me yes. something new. Make me feel like, like the movies are continually innovating. And yes. Then, and then okay. So yeah, I'm glad that we talked about like three kind of resurrections of IPs that are innovating in their own way, which I didn't really realize we'd put that together, but we had. Yeah, Ta-da. I like that. All right, so Amy, this is super fun. I think we should do it again. When there are some uh, movies in the theater that we want to gravitate towards, I think it's a great way to kind of do a little, uh, a little like sampler platter of uh, these great movies. I agree, buddy. I am in. And, and I love that we are now officially launched into our new series, which yes. is... Heroes on screen. We are kicking off this week with Superman. And I'm just going to give people a heads up of what we're doing after this now, because, you know, it's a long movie. I want you to start watching it on Netflix. We are going to follow up Superman by doing RRR. If you are a person into movies, you have heard about the legend of RRR. It is a crazy Bollywood fight movie extravaganza. Probably one of the most insane things I have ever seen in the theater. And now it is on Netflix where you can taste the RRR madness. This movie is nuts, man. I will I will say this, uh, just in case you've not heard of this. This is a movie that unequivocally, every film fan I know is like, this movie has blown my mind. It is a movie that they've really re- released into theaters. It is a box office success around the world. I highly recommend you taking a chance on this one and getting prepped for this movie. It's a long movie, like Amy said, but... 
The reason why we're going to do it is because I have not seen more of a positive, excited response from film Twitter about a movie in a long time. And it's a movie that often doesn't get this kind of attention. Obviously, it's it's not a not an American film. It's uh, you know, it's it's a movie that people had to really find. And when they found it, they shared it. And everyone is it leaves mind blown. And I don't think that that's setting it up too high. I think you have to go in knowing like you're in for something. Yeah, not only did every single one of the top critics on Rotten Tomatoes give it a fresh, it has a 94% fresh audience score. It is nuts. It is nuts. I think it is a great one-two punch after Superman, man. All right, I love it. Amy, we'll uh, see you next week for Superman. Superman. 